following NBC Sports program is brought to you in living color. So that was uh, the 1974 NHL on NBC theme. Uh, like we've done every week so far, I want to bring in a uh, hockey theme uh, that really sort of sets the mood for the era that we're talking about. And that's where we're definitely going to be for this book and discussion is square in the middle of the 1970s. So uh, hopefully that got you in the mood. But at any rate, welcome, 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 welcome. And good day to all you hockey fans out there. My name is Danny Lambert, and this is From the Point, the podcast where every week I take a look at a book on the great sport of hockey, break it down so we can further understand the stories and facts that truly make hockey the greatest sport on earth. So I'm really glad you're with us today. On almost a daily basis, I seem to be reminded of how old I am. I know 42 is not really crazy old, but it's certainly not considered a young age. I believe the technical term is middle-aged. It really floors me sometimes how I'll reference something from the past and a younger person will tell me that they either A, don't remember it, or B, some cases they weren't even alive when it happened. That was a really fun realization to come to in some cases. Uh, it's hard for me to think that some of you listeners out there don't even remember or weren't even around when the Soviet Union was in existence. Because in the 1980s, the United, especially in the 1980s when I was growing up, uh, the United States and Canada, there was really one central fact of life that seemed to dominate the landscape of our society, and that was the Cold War with the Soviet Union. The rivalry was not just a geopolitical power struggle, but one that permeated into pop culture and even into sports. Of course, hockey was no of exception. And for those of you who know the history behind the Soviet hockey program, it was actually uh, their quest to become the preeminent hockey power in the world that made an all-out assault to, uh, you know, just dominate the sport for decades. Um, and I can tell you, having seen the Soviet teams when I was a kid in the 1980s, uh, I can tell you firsthand, they were absolutely amazing. Their domination had gone on so many years before that, though. Uh, it all started in 1954 with gold at the World Championships. The Soviets would continue their domination after that on the stage of international hockey for close to four decades winning nine Olympic medals, seven gold, one silver, uh, one bronze, 31 world championship medals, 20 gold, seven silver, four bronze, and four Canada Cup medals, one gold, one silver, two bronze. But perhaps their greatest decade, uh, like I said, and the one we're going to talk about today where our story takes place is the 1970s, when they won two of two Olympic gold medals and seven of 10 world championship gold medals. As a matter of fact, in world championship play in the 1970s, the Soviets never finished out of the medals. 
Let me repeat that. Every world championship in the 1970s, the Soviets won and hockey won a medal. The argument can be made that this domination was simply because the Soviets in the Olympics and world championships were playing with amateur players and not the best professionals from the, uh, the world over. So, uh, you know, the professionals from Canada and the other countries weren't the ones playing the Soviets. It was their amateurs. Uh, but we soon found out that, uh, you know, the Soviets would get their chance to play the best professionals that Canada had to offer in two summit series against the NHL and Canadian players in 1972, uh, which the Canadians barely won in dramatic fashion. And, and the second uh, one after that was uh, the Canadians represented by WHA players uh, who actually lost to the Soviets in a much less competitive series. So you can see where... The Soviets were always constantly trying to find their way to not just play our best, uh, the Canadian U.S.'s best amateurs, but play their best professionals. And they got that chance in 72 and 74. But even after the 74 Summit Series win, the Soviets were still looking to continue to prove their dominance in hockey. Uh, and they were determined to take on the NHL teams head on because they wanted to show that it wasn't just a, a collection of uh, good players. They wanted to beat the good teams. They get their wish in the 1976 Super Series that would take place between December 1975 and January 1976. The first few games in December saw the Soviets, who were playing as the Central Red Army team, which for all intents and purposes, for those of you who don't know, is pretty much the Soviet national team minus a few players here and there. Uh, in the uh, first game in 75, they trounced the Rangers and the uh, Penguins as they went into the uh, New Year's Eve matchup against the uh, Montreal Canadiens in the Forum. And the resulting game between the Habs and the Soviet Union on that 1975 New Year's Eve has been called by many the greatest hockey game ever played. In the end, it was a 3-3 time, but the legend of that night has endured for so many years afterwards. The game only tells part of the story. So much went into that game before and after that you'd be remiss if you only studied what happened during the tilt. So let's take a look at the particulars of that game in this week's book, The Greatest Game, The Montreal Canadiens, The Red Army, and The Night That Saved Hockey by Todd Deneau. Jarvis has it outside his line. It looks like it's going to end at three. One second left. The game is over. And the Soviets and the Canadians tie. At three. Well, John, it's just amazing. The final score is 3-3. Three, three. The shots on goal, 16-6 in favor of the Canadians in the final period. 38-13 overall. I don't think we're being anything but fair to say that the Soviets were completely outplayed tonight. But we've just seen one of the greatest displays of goaltending that you can ever see. Just tremendous. I watched them yesterday in practice. Worked so very hard. Even the pregame warm-up tonight. And uh, he has all the moves and watches the puck. Very seldom lets a rebound go out. Just a great hockey and we couldn't ask for anything better. So what you heard there is the uh, end of the game, actually. So you can see on the Hockey Night in Canada broadcast uh, them describing basically that it was a 3-3 tie and, and just how exciting the game was. And I think it's a, it's a proper place to start when we start thinking about this uh, book and this game overall. Uh, start from the start from the end because that uh, just 
grab that excitement right away and get it going because that's what it was at the end of the game. It was a, an exciting game. Everybody was exhausted, but they had all known that they had just witnessed probably what was one of the greatest hockey games ever played. So for the warm-up, I'm going to start with this statement. This book is definitely one of my top five hockey books I've ever read. If you pick this up, you're going to learn a lot about what hockey was like in the 1970s and the background on key players, themes, and circumstances that shaped this one game between the Soviets and Canadians. Deneau is very descriptive as well. I found myself reading the recap of the New Year's Eve game that he wrote and quickly being able to imagine the action almost if I was watching it on TV. He did such a great job of leaving no stone unturned, from talking about the small plays and the big ones to describing how Danny Gallivan and Dick Irvin called the commentary on the game. He even decided to give you a peek behind the scenes of how the Hockey Night in Canada broadcast came together and was being run. So that was pretty cool. I also learned so much from this book because of Deneau's patience in telling the stories of the two teams. He took the time to explain the rise and construction of the Red Army team by Anatoly Tarasov and his visions, the successes that made the Soviets feared, and the seeming obsession that the Soviets had to prove themselves superior to the Canadians uh, as a whole at every level of the hockey world. For the Habs, Deneau follows much of the same formula as showing you the determination of GM Sam Pollock with the help of coach Scotty Bowman to win, build a winner in Montreal. He also explains the key Canadian players and how their stories at the time brought them each to an individual place that made the game so special. And if that wasn't enough, and if that wasn't enough, uh, Deneau takes the time to explain the negotiations that it led to the 76 Super Series and the people who made the process works. He even takes time to tell you who attended the game. Most of all, though, it's the discussion uh, that he speaks of when he speaks of kind of the last part, when he says uh, in the title, in the night that saved hockey. Uh, when he starts talking about the effect that the Flyers had with their two Stanley Cup wins and the fact that they were turning the game into a more violent and uh, less skilled game and then how, how he juxtaposes that with the skills of the Canadians uh, who were still relevant and just how the Habs were representing the best parts of the game and with and that the, their display of skill in this game uh, start to bring the game back, uh, right it on the right course, uh, sparking the Habs. Uh, onto that 76 Stanley Cup win and then uh, four, three more right after that win So uh, to close out the 1970s. I could go on, but needless to say, this is a well-researched and meticulously written book. Because of that, you don't need to have much of any previous experience on these teams or the game itself. I'd say that all you need to do is read this book and have a love of the game and a genuine curiosity about hockey history. To enjoy it. I guess if you're listening, you got both those desires, so why not? You know, this is definitely a book for you. So now that you know what the book's all about, let's drop the puck on the first period and discuss how the great Soviet team who played the Habs was what it was and the motivations and reasons that led to them uh, to play the exhibition game that seemingly counted for nothing on New Year's Eve in Montreal Forum. Uh, the first period's up next. Stand by. Tarasov was the, the father of the Soviet system and the head coach of the Red Army. 
This man played a big role in my life. It's Red Army in my heart. I was a chamber, I was 10 years old. He taught us, he used to develop the program. We wrote a few books about the hockey. So these books was lay next to my bed since I was a little kid. To describe the game in a very uh, simple way. Hockey is an aggressive game. It's not like tennis, right? So I wouldn't say that the, the, North, the Americans, the Canadians, are more aggressive than the Russians. I wouldn't say that. But I do think that there was a different concept of how you play the game. Tarasov, who was an extremely creative man, he saw hockey as this amazingly intricate game of passing the puck. The Soviets play more of a finesse, improvisational game. And they the could cut and weave beautifully. Their passing game was an intricate artistic tapestry, uh, which uh, we didn't see over here. We emphasized everything in a unit of a collective. The puck carrier was the servant of the other players. So what you heard there was a, a clip from the documentary Red Army, which uh, chronicles the Red Army's rise to power uh, in the hockey world and then discusses what the uh, from the perspective of the different players, uh, just kind of what it was like and how they were able to formulate what they did. And uh, what I really like there is uh, how they described Tarasov and what he meant to Soviet hockey, especially Fatisov, who wasn't a part of the Red Army team that took on the Canadians in this game, but of course later on was a extreme key part of the uh, Red Army team being their captain. Uh, but I really enjoyed just hearing him and the experts talk about Tarasov and how what he meant and how he started the Soviet tradition. And that's where we're going to start uh, with uh, Tarasov. So the roots of Soviet hockey ran deep and still do to this day uh, in the mid-1970s. All those roots grew out of the leadership of a man who Deneau describes as, quote, the rarest of hockey coaches, a man who studied theory and taught tactics, an extremely complex man. He was part psychologist, part tyrant, and a strict believer in the principles of communism. He adored Canadian hockey, but his ego, along with his ambition, allowed him to believe that he could improve on it. In this process, he created a different style of hockey. And perfected and played the Soviet way. Not only was he able to shape an international hockey superpower in his towering image, but he was able to do it in the relative seclusion of the Soviet Union. Because his country did not have an entrenched hockey tradition, he had the opportunity to try different tactics and training. He was free to experiment, to keep what he liked, and discard what he didn't. In the end, he pioneered techniques, philosophies, and ideas that have since been adopted worldwide. Deneau picks up on something here that is important to the understanding of so the Soviet game's history, the uniqueness and the dominance. Tarasov understood the Canadian brand of hockey perhaps better than the Canadians themselves did who were playing it in the 1950s. But by being such a student of the way the Canadians played hockey, he was able to take the best and the worst and make his own brand, new brand of hockey, the Soviet brand of hockey. And since the sport was new to the country, he could mold the tradition in the Soviet Union how, however he wished. The only thing he needed to do was keep the leaders of the USSR happy, 
uh, and win. And he was able to do, start doing that very quickly. Another great insight into the Soviet style from Deneau is the idea that the differences in societies was a big factor in molding the two different styles of hockey. Put simply, Canadian society mainly revolved around the individual and the players in Canada would have multiple choices, multiple coaches and many different styles of hockey uh, to learn on their way up the hockey ladder as they reach the uh, pinnacle, which would be international play in the NHL. In the Soviet Union, the society was communist and defined itself through collectivism. And that spilled over into Trasov's emphasis and the players buying into the idea that the team's success was what counted the most and that they simply were all one small part in that. Most of all, though, the collective game that they played was led by Tarasov. And so all the intermediaries and the coaches that taught uh, at the lower levels were conforming to Tarasov's style. Thus, by the time players were ready to play for the Red Army or national team, they knew how to play for Tarasov because they had already been playing that system their, ent their entire lives. It was the Soviet system, which was Tarasov's system. Tarasov believed in being creative. He wanted to emphasize speed, mobility, passing, and teamwork to keep the game moving. Tarasov described the Canadian brand of hockey as a power game using body checking and intimidation as his main tenets. Looking at these tenets, you can see that they are contrasting from Tarasov's point of view. From point of view, to beat the Canadians, he had to he had the right strength. He had to make sure they had the right strengths and to counterbalance beating the Canadian strengths. It didn't matter to the Soviets that you hit them harder. That you hit harder than them, they were faster, and they decided that their goal was to simply beat you on the scoreboard. By the 1960s, the Soviets were clearly the best team on the international stage. They still showed some cracks in their game, though. By 1967, they had amassed four of seven Olympic world, uh, seven of four of the four uh, world championships already played that decade and were the defending Olympic champions from the 1964 games. But Tarasov was looking to make the team even better by shoring up what he felt was their weakest position, the goaltender. Tarasov started to rethink how he saw the position and needed someone with natural talents who he could mold into the goaltender he needed. He'd get that goaltender eventually, and a young prospect that he met in July of 1967 named Ladislav Tretiak. When looking back at meeting Tretiak, Tarasov said, I decided that it was absolutely necessary to upgrade the overall level of play our goaltender of our goaltenders in order to keep them to gain more respect on our team. It became important for them to develop a high sense of intelligence and the ability to analyze our rivals quickly. The goalkeeper had to become a major figure on the team. Just as I was coming to these conclusions, I saw a tall boy by the name of Ladislav Tretiak. I liked his outward appearance. I immediately recalled Bomil Modri, and they looked alike, with the same mighty stature, the same huge hands. Tretiak was the person I was looking for. I started to work with him immediately. It's like he had been sent to me. With Tretiak between the pipes, it can be said that the Soviets finally had everything they needed to not just be the best team in the world, but now it just wasn't even close. 
After taking over the net for the Soviets in 1969 permanently, Tretiak was dominant and provided and proved it on the international stage. As Tarasov saw it, the Soviet team was now complete, and with his new prize pupil, uh, his new prize pupil was the last piece in the puzzle that he needed to put together in order to take on the world's best. It was at this point that Deneau explains that Tarasov knew his players were ready for what everyone knew would be the impending showdown with the professionals of the NHL. That showdown would come in a roundabout way in the form of the 1972 Summit Series. The best NHL players from Canada were put together to form a super team to face the Soviets in an eight-game series that saw some of the best hockey played ever, period. The series itself merits an episode of its own, to summarize as simply as possible, the series was so contested that it took a three-game comeback on the Soviets on Soviet soil for the Canadians to come away as the winner of the series. In fact, it was so close that it came down to the final minute of play uh, when Paul Henderson scored the game-winning goal uh, in Game 8, taking the series for Canada with a record of four wins, three losses, and one tie. You could see it was very, very close. And these were supposed to be the best professionals in the entire world uh, playing for Team Canada. One big piece missing from that Summit Series, though, was the man whose vision made it possible, Tarasov. He was dismissed from his duties as coach almost six months earlier after the 1972 Olympics in Sapporo. After defying the Soviet officials and letting his players keep $200 each that they had earned by playing exhibition games before the game started in Japan. He, he had had his few run-ins before that with the uh, Soviet brass, and this was just his latest defiance. So it could be said that this was a straw that broke the camel's back and probably was coming for a while. Still, the legacy of the 1972 Summit Series would be that the Soviets would look for another chance to prove themselves and eventually get the desired uh, you know, win that they wanted against NHL talent. Uh, they tried again in 1974. This time, the resulting Summit Series that was played was against the WHA professionals, and it wasn't even close. The Soviets dominated the Rebel League players as they rolled to a 4-1-3 and record. While, yes, it can be argued that the WHA players were not a compet- as competitive of a group as the NHL players that played in 72, this was still a team that featured Gordie Howe and Bobby Hull, who weren't allowed to play in the 72 series. Uh, Hull, uh, Howe because he was retired and Hull because he had switched to the WHA. Alas, the aging superstars still weren't enough. Uh, the Canadians would f- finally say that the great Howe and Hull had taken the Soviets on so and lost. So now we kind of are a little bit even between uh, what you would say would be the Soviets and the Canadians, and both sides were looking to continue to uh, make the discussion just a little bit longer and see who would actually come out on top. And so that loss brings us uh, almost two years later when the Super Series was born. The Canadians uh, were anxious to get a rematch, and the Soviets wanted to get even more direct competition with Canadian uh, North American professionals. So the two sides decided that the best way to, to put this to bed was to have the Red Army team take on NHL professionals uh, playing at playing at what would be probably their best and most competitive with their complete NHL teams. With the first game set to start uh, in December of 1975, the NHL found itself as a league that was having a bit of an identity crisis, though. 
The mid-1970s had seen the decline of skilled hockey and the rise of violent, almost too rough brand of hockey. The idea that you could rough up or intimidate the Soviets was almost moot because they wanted to win on the scoreboard and could despite the rough stuff. But as fate would have it, there still was enough pure talent to take on the Red Army in their own game. And one team that was built with the right mix, there was one team that was built with the right mix of old and new talent that would give them a great game. Let's take a look at that team and what made the 1975-76 Montreal Canadiens so special. The second period is coming up next. With Guy Lafleur finding his stride on a line with Steve Shutt and Jacques Lemaire, and bolstered by a defensive core that featured the likes of Larry Robinson, Guy Lapointe, and Serge Savard, and with Ken Dryden in the nets, the Montreal Canadiens were unstoppable. You know what at the time, but you really know what afterwards. I mean, how good they were. And, and, and right through the lineup. I mean, that th we would have been an awful team to play against. All right, so what you heard right there was uh, a bit of a documentary about the Canadians in the 1970s and just how dominant they were. Uh, listen to that group of players, holy moly. That is an amazing collection of people, and uh, I can't understate how great this team was if you haven't ever looked into it before. Just all those names right there were amazing. Uh, and then you heard from Ken Dryden himself at the end just saying how tough he thought the Canadians were to play against every every night, uh, just what a total team they were. And that's going to be what we talk about, where their place was and how uh, that team was built and what it meant uh, for that team uh, and how good they were going into the uh, what would be called the greatest game, that New Year's Eve game. So to say that the Montreal Canadiens dominated the NHL in the 1970s would be a complete understatement. They won six of ten cups that were handed out that decade to include a run of straight, four straight to close out the 1970s. The Canadian teams in the 1970s were a product of perhaps the best GM ever to run a hockey franchise in the great Sam Pollock. Pollock took the reins of G as GM of the Habs in 1964 from the great Frank Selke and quickly looked to keep the Canadians winning. He made so many shrewd moves that seemed crazy at the time, but he kept the Habs retooled year after year with young talent, and they kept winning consistently with six cups under Sam Pollock's leadership uh, by the end of the 1973 season. He had made deals to get the draft picks to pick the players that would become the nucleus of future teams in the 1970s that were so dominant, and he did it while continuing to win. Today, that would be considered a, a rebuild effort. You'd have to go through and sort of, you know, tank a little bit to get the, the higher draft picks. But for Pollock, he just kept winning year after year and restocking his talent at the same time. Also, to Pollock's credit, it cannot be understated how great he was to uh, spot, develop, and bring up his own protege, Scotty Bowman, who he got back behind the bench of the Canadians starting in the 1971-72 season. Still in 1975, the Canadians found their dominance slipping a little bit. After being handily defeated and outmuscled by the St. Louis Blues in the 1968-69 playoffs, the Philadelphia Flyers decided that they would start to build their team in a style of play where the other team would not get the best of them physically. They would do the intimidating rather than be intimidated. The result was the building of a team that was less dependent on hockey skills and more dependent on its ability to bully the other team. Hence, the group became known as the Broad Street Bullies. 
And by the nineteen by nineteen seventy three, the Canadians were a team that was easily the most skilled in the league. Guy Lafleur had finally started to show some of the scoring prowess that had become the, the of the Guy Lafleur that we know today. And today, and today, and names like Lemaire, Mahavlich, and Cormier were still putting up monster numbers on the score sheet. Perhaps most importantly, Ken Dryden was easily the best goaltender in the league in '73, putting up thirty three wins a .926 save percentage, and a goals against average of 2.26 to lead the league in each one of those three major goaltender categories as he went on to capture the Vesna Trophy that year. That season, though, they met up with the Flyers in the playoffs, and they bested them in four games to one in the semifinals. But that would change as the teams would move into the 73-74 season as the Flyers would start weaving a new thread that would see them on top of the league by season's end, hosting, hoisting the Stanley Cup. The Flyers would get a big break that summer as they reacquired uh, Bernie Perrant, who they had traded away a few seasons before to the Maple Leafs, and who, and who was returning from a season with the Philadelphia Blazers of the WHA. Perrant had a monster season in 73-74, and like Dryden the season previous, won the Vesna by sweeping the three big goaltender stats with 47 wins, a .932 save percentage, and a goals against average, at one, amazingly, of a 1.89. And the Flyers in front of him became even more brutal, with seven players over 100 penalty minutes that season. And oddly enough, that and Perrant's goaltending was so effective that they didn't need to have a superstar scorer. After all, Bobby Clark led the team with 35 goals that season. That finished him 12th overall in the league in a season where four players in the league scored over 50 goals. It still is good enough for the Bullies to win the first of their two straight cups. Deneau runs, runs this change down well in a quote from Bobby Clark and some great insight into what the flyer, Flyers' effect was in the book by saying uh, from Clark, quote, We know if we do our thing, we'll beat the other club. A confident Bobby Clark boasted, let them worry about us. In the old days, we were worried about them, not anymore. The Flyers' main weapon against other teams was not talent or speed, but sure intimidation that Deneau continues. It permeated through everything they did. By playing such a physical style, the Flyers dictated the game's overall style, regardless of their opposition. Suddenly, many of their opponents were forced into playing the Flyers type of game, often unwillingly, which only worked in Philadelphia's favor. The Flyers weren't the first team to play an aggressive style. Many NHL teams in the past had to rely on their physical attributes to make up for a skill gap against its opponents. The Flyers, however, were the first to take it to the extreme, making their form of controlled violence and constant hostility a fundamental part of their game plan. By following that particular style of play, the Flyers embraced its natural conclusion, fighting. Fighting had always been part of the game, but Shiro and the Flyers were the first to encourage and integrate it into their game plan. As Deneau continues in a quote from Fred Shiro, quote, Hockey, Shiro openly declared, is just a love affair when it doesn't have fighting. Deneau continues, teams had more skill had more skill were overmatched by the ferocious flyers 
Quote, all of a sudden we went from getting pushed around to getting even, Clark proudly admitted. St. Louis and the Bruins bullied everyone before us. We were accused of starting it all, but we were the ones who got tired of getting beat up. When we got to the top, we took full advantage of it. It felt pretty good, actually. Deneau continues, in 1972-73, the Flyers were charged with 1,756 penalty minutes and almost 600 more than their closest competition, establishing a new, if dubious, NHL standard. By the spring of 1973, the Flyers had become the sport's most popular draw, loved at home, and reveled on the road. But not everyone was overjoyed with their increasing notoriety. NHL president Clarence Campbell sent a message to the team's ownership threatening disciplinary action if they didn't step in to control the rampaging players. The Flyers' ownership was now riding the wave of the team's popularity and reveling in their newfound outlaw image, ignored the missive. The Flyers finished second in the NHL's Western Division at the conclusion of 1972-73 season. Bobby Clark ended the season in second place in the scoring race and was rewarded with the Hart Trophy as the league's most valuable player. Rick McLeish scored the third most goals in the league with an even 50. Although the the fighting Flyers were often criticized for their belligerent ways, Frank Orr wrote Frank Orr, it was clear that the team had more toughness going for it. In the first round of the playoffs, they defeated the Minnesota North Stars in six games. That victory garnered them the honor of facing the Montreal Canadiens in the semifinals. It would be a close series with the Flyers' loss to the eventual champion Canadiens in a hard-fought, close, closely played games. Five hard-fought, closely played games. Although we lost to the Canadiens, the fact that we have a a tough battle to the be- we gave a tough battle to the best team in hockey was. Good for our confidence, Bobby Clark later said. We knew that we were just a bit away from being the Stanley, being Stanley Cup, the Stanley being a Stanley Cup team. From the point of view of the Flyers' management, there was a simple solution to closing that gap. Less than a month later, on May 15, 1973, they remedied their deficiencies at goalie position by the reacquisition of Bernie Perrant, an original Flyer after a stint with the Toronto Maple Leafs and a year with the Philadelphia Blazers of the WHA, returned to his professional home. The addition of, addition of Perrant and goal combined with the subtraction of Ken Dryden from the Montreal Canadiens roster a few months later tilted the unstable axis of the NHL elite's teams. What had once been a source of strength in Montreal in Dryden's absence was now an obvious detriment. And while the Canadiens clearly struggled, the Flyers became even bolder with Perrant and net slashing 92 goals from the previous year's total and finishing the 1973-74 season a single point away from the NHL's best. In the playoffs, they would dispose the Atlanta Flames before vanquishing the New York Rangers in the semifinals and then conquering Bobby Orr and Phil Esposito on the Boston Bruins in the Stanley Cup Finals. And and only their seventh season of existence and only five years after their owner's bold proclamation Philadelphia Flyers had become the first expansion franchise to capture the Stanley Cup. As Bobby Clark and Bernie Perrant paraded around the raucous Philadelphia spectrum, there could be no doubt that the NHL had now entered a new age. Uh, That's quite a lot of reading from the book, but I really felt that that is the best description of where the NHL was at this point uh, because of the Flyers and 
the uh, slight decline of the uh, Canadians. And looking ahead to the next season in 74-75, the Bullies got even more brutal. They upped their penalty tally by 225 minutes, and Dave Schultz set the NHL record that season that still stands for penalty minutes with an astronomical 472. They doubled down on their strategy, and it worked again as they raised the Stanley Cup for the second time in as many years. By now, the rest of the league had caught on that the Flyers formula can work, and you started to see less of an emphasis on skill play and more of an emphasis on physical and violence uh, to win the game. It looked like a changing of the guard from the technically proficient and skillful Canadians to the Broad Street Bullies and their brand of blood and guts hockey that was almost reversible as the rest of the league saw that they could follow the Flyers formula and win while doing it. The Canadians going into the 1975-76 season were a team that saw the departure of some of the team's older core and were beat down by tough playoff losses in the last two seasons. Ken Dryden had sat out the 73-74 season with a contract dispute and wasn't quite Ken Dryden in his return in 74-75. Henri Richard retired after the 73 Cup win. Frank Mahovlich retired after 73-74. And Yvonne Cornway was losing a step as he saw his production decline in both 73-74 and 74-75. The Canadians were hoping to find some magic in 75-76, but the expectations were that they were in for another tough year and probably were going to lose out to the Cup again to the Flyers and possibly the Sabres. But the season had started, uh, but the season when the season started, that just wasn't the case. In the lead-up to their New Year's Eve showdown with the Red Army, the Habs went on a tear, racking up an impressive 26-5-6 record by tallying 157 goals, Four in 37 games for an average of 4.2 goals a game. Dryden was playing much better as well. A blight, he was not a bit inconsistent. He was still doing what he needed to do to help the Habs win each game and was better than his return season the season previous. It looked like the it looked like in the NHL the Canadians were now the standard bearer for skilled hockey, sitting diametrically opposed to the bullies in their brand of physical blood and guts hockey. Now it was time to face the Soviets. Sure, they had the momentum. Sure, the mom, sure that they had the momentum in the NHL, but did they have the momentum to beat the Red Army that boasted some of the best collection of hockey talent in the entire world? The Habs were ready, and they wouldn't disappoint. The show behind the game was great, and the two teams who both had to prove a lot would be ready and give Canada, give Canada, the Soviet Union, and the world a great show. So let's dive into what made that New Year's Eve 1975 contest, quote, the greatest game ever. Hold on. The final frame is next. Good evening, everyone. Happy New Year. I'm Dave Reynolds with Danny Gallivan, Dick Irvin, John Ferguson, and Howie Meeker. There are more than 18,000, 19,000 people in this building, and they're waiting for the start of what may be the key game in Super Series 76. The atmosphere in the forum is electric because here it's more than just the Montreal Canadiens versus the Soviets. It's Canada. Howie, what about it? Well, I don't think the Russians can match Dryden and goal. LaPointe is Savard on defense and all the fellows that play that position with them. And down center, I think Lemaire, Mahavlik, and Riseboro give us an edge. So Canada, sit back, relax, enjoy yourself, have a ball. The Canadians are going to win tonight. I sure hope you're right. So as we get ready to talk about the actual game itself, I felt it'd be pretty... Uh, 
awesome to listen to the Hockey Night in Canada broadcast uh, that started the entire game and just how everybody kind of felt to set the mood of what the game is while we talk about uh, how the game went down and just what was important about it. So uh, hopefully you enjoyed that. I, I know I really did. So getting into the third period, we uh, basically look at uh, what the 75-76 Super Series was. Um, and so to start that out, this was not the first game of that series, as we alluded to earlier. The Red Army team started the 75-76 Super Series with a bang, blowing out the New York Rangers in Madison Square Garden 7-3. to This wasn't expected to be much of a game, really, as the Rangers at the time were considered to be one of the NHL's worst teams. So the loss really wasn't a surprise to anyone. I think it was just really the blowout fashion uh, that happened and that really surprised everybody. And just how good the Soviets looked was another big surprise. Harry Sinden, part of that 72 Summit series, was on the broadcast, and he remarked that the Red Army looked better than the team that had played them in 72. The Rangers had just tried to slow them down playing a you know physical intimidation style like we were saying that the NHL was starting to kind of move towards, and it just really didn't work as the Soviets went and skated circles around them. But taking notice of that game, of course, was Scotty Bowman, and he knew that his team needed to play a game that was centered around skating with the Soviets and not trying to slow them down because that was virtually impossible. Bowman realized that to win against the Soviets, you had to understand their game and know where its weak points were. After all, Tarasov had built Soviet hockey on the ideas of creativity of pa- and passing. They were uh, too fast to get a hold of, so trying to hit them really wasn't effective. But breaking up their passing lanes and concentrating on puck position was a much better strategy. As Bowman watched the Red Army practice that day before the game and started to take some mental notes, he drafted a game plan based on that and the discussions he had actually had with Anatoly Tarasov, who was present that day before. And even though Tarasov was there, he had already re, you know, relinquished his coaching duties. But Bowman had built a strategy with two main tenets that revolved around dictating the Soviet tempo of play. It seems simple, but as Deneau points out, the twin tenets, tenets of Bowman's game plan against the Soviets were no different than what he preached in any other game against any other opponent. Take control of the puck and take the opponent out of his comfort zone. Simply put, the team controlled the puck could dictate how the game would be played. Bowman had seen the Rangers, despite all their mistakes, dominate the face-off zone against the Red Army. Bowman knew that the Canadians could also do, could also do the same. They could not only dictate the terms and the pace of play of the game, could also keep the puck away from the most dangerous Soviet players. Bowman had also made a note of a strange little quirk from that particular game. To his eyes, it appeared that the Russians did not play along the boards, ever. In response, Bowman told his team that when they had possession along the boards in the Soviet end of the rink, they should take their time since there would be no pressure. He also told his defense to clog up the middle in both the neutral zone and in their own zone, since it was these zones that the Russians would try to generate their offense. He further instructed his charges to be aggressive in the middle, to take away the Red Army's space. Watching the Rangers game, 
Bowman had also noticed that the Red Army was not only susceptible to a strong, consistent forecheck, but little, but a little soft in their defense, at least by NHL standards, and would often opt to stick check rather than body check. He also tracked the Red Army's tendencies with the puck. He made note that of the Soviets' preference to shoot from the middle of the ice or in the slot area. In addition, he became aware of the tendency of the Russian puck carrier when he hit his own blue line to make a short pass and then cross the wing and wait for the return pass. Bowman instructed his players to permit that first pass and then take the passer out of the play in order to disrupt the flow of the Soviet offense. So the next night, the Canadians were ready to execute. Obviously, Bowman had done his homework. The Soviets were also ready, as this was not the first big game for many of the Red Army superstars. Names like Tretiak, Karlamov, Mikhailov had already played in the forum before and knew what the Montreal crowd might be like. This game was set, and everyone from and everyone from the Hockey Night in Canada booth to the fans and everyone in TV land around the world knew that they were in for a great game. As the Red Army's top line of Mikhailov, Karlamov, Petrov, Vasiliev, and Gusev met the Habs uh, line of Lafleur, Ganey, Murray Wilson, Zavard, and Lapointe, it was clear that Bowman was sending a message to the Soviets that they would not be outskated or outworked right from the beginning. And that's exactly what happened in the first period. The Canadians expected they could control the pace of the game for sure, but by the end of the period, they had accomplished something that no one had expected. The Habs had outshot the Red Army 11-4 and carried a 2-0 lead in the locker room with goals from Steve Shutt and Yvonne Lambert. Montreal was so dominant in the period that the first 10 minutes that just before the halfway mark when Lambert scored to make it 2-0, the shot total was 7-0 in favor of the Habs. It was mostly due to what they described as a relentless forecheck. The Canadians were mainly employing a system whereby they sent two forecheckers and left the other three skaters between the blue and red lines to cover the play in case the forecheckers failed. But largely in that period, they were not failing. What made the Red Army defense make mistakes, they made the Red Army make defense make mistakes that led to turnovers, that led to big scoring chances. With Energy, tough two-way forwards like Lambert, Risebrow, and Tremblay, and Lamare, the system was working so much that Bowman needed to keep pressing the Red Army to keep making mistakes. As uh, it, it, the system was working so well that uh, you know Bowman really didn't have to press so much at the uh, intermission because the game plan was working. And by contrast, too, though the Red Army coach Constantine looked. Tokov uh, actually uh, does much of the same, surprisingly, as he decided not to tell his team that things were they, things needed to be changed. He actually said that thing he felt that things were going to work out if they only worked harder on their game by making better passes and skating harder. The second period starts where the game left off in the first, with the Canadians repelling the Red Army's offensive advances. Still, despite the near-perfect execution of shutting the Soviet offense, the Habs had a bit of a slip-up near the four-minute mark as Vasiliev, the Red Army defender, made a long outpass that was able to connect with Boris Mikhailov, who made a 
couple of great moves and got off a shot that beat Ken Dry just beat Ken Dryden to make it two to one. It was at that moment where the persistence and commitment to their style of hockey by the Soviets had paid off, and it looked like this could be a possible momentum shift. Still, the Canadians were not going to get away from their game plan, and they were able to control the play again, they even after the, uh, so the Soviets had scored. This control of the play led to a couple of rare Soviet mistakes that dug them a hole a bit further for the Red Army. Uh, being frustrated by the relentless offensive zone pressure, the Red Army took a series of penalties just after scoring that first goal that ended them up ended up uh, ended them up being shorthanded uh, by two players. The Habs would not let this opportunity pass as Yvonne Cornway took a rebound that flew off the far glass and rifled. And as he uh, took the shot, he rifled it past Tretiak to widen Montreal's lead back to two goals at three to one. The second period moved on with the same tempo of play. The Canadians were still challenging the Soviets at every turn and keeping their offense at bay. But just as it seemed like the Habs would uh, take a two-goal lead again into the inter intermission, as they had the period before, the Red Army's best scorer and perhaps the best scorer in Soviet history, Valery Karlamov, scored with four minutes left to, to go before the buzzer and cut the Canadians' lead to only one goal. His goal was pure finesse Soviet style, and the Soviet style is uh, Petrov drug three Canadian defenders into the right boards and then saucered his pass perfectly into the middle, hitting the trailing Karlamov, who did not miss his shot past a sprawling Ken Dryden. Looking ahead to the final frame, during that second intermission, both teams were happy with their game plans and once again didn't want to change much. The Habs were suffocating the Red Army with their forecheck, and the Soviets, much like in the first period, were not ready to panic and knew that their game was working as they were able to take advantage of the cracks in Montreal's pressure, even if they were few and far between. They knew that Dryden had only faced a handful of shots, but had still let in a few, had still let in two goals and was a little shaky and vulnerable. Conversely, they knew that their netminder, Tretiak, had let in three shots three goals on 19 shots, but looked strong and, and could take over the game if need be. As the puck dropped in the third period, the Habs had come out and were once again pushing the play. But something seemed to be different in this period. Tretiak had turned his game up to another notch. Granted, he played great in the other two frames, but in this final period, it was obvious that he had certainly shifted into a higher gear. The Habs had started the period with a strong attack, and Tretiak was simply not going to let them widen their lead. At about the four-minute mark of the period, the Red Army was able to mount another scoring attack as Boris Alexandrov slid the equalizing goal past Ken Dryden to make the score 3-3. Three three. The Habs had over-pursued the puck in the Soviet end after a rebound from a Murray Wilson shot, and the Red Army was able to create a two-on-one breaking out of their zone gaining into the Canadian zone. Larry Robinson was trailing and tried to spread out in front of the sprawling puck carrier, Victor Scholtkoff, to stop his pass, but he was able to be patient and let Robinson slide by as he then hit his rush partner, Alexandrov, who took a few strides and then wristed the shot that bounced off Dryden's glove and into the net. Slight disclaimer here, I'm not a Russian speaker, so if I butchered those names, Totally 
totally understand. Please leave the comments and let everybody know that I'm horrible at Russian players. At any rate, as I give as I gave away earlier, three to three was the final score of the game, but I don't think the game was quite over at that point with 16 minutes to go. The drama that played out for the rest of the third period was centered around the goaltender's performances, especially that of Treciak. As alluded to before, he simply seemed to flip on a switch and decided that he would stop everything that period, and he did. The Habs kept him at, kept him at to kept at him to the tune of 16 shots on goal that period, and Treciak stopped them all. Doug Reisbauer would later say in a 2015 article uh, that Tretiak's performance, quote, stole the game. He was just great. His teammates tried to reward, his, reward their goaltender with the win, but the Habs were still keeping the Red Army shots down and scoring chances down. Dryden wasn't perfect, but he made the stops he needed to in the final little bit of the third period, and some, he had some puck luck here and there uh, to, to make it even better. Perhaps the best of that puck luck was uh, when, in the final minutes of the game, Vladimir Popov had had Dryden beat, uh, but his shot found nothing but iron at that point. Uh, it could have been a win, and I think a lot of people understand that uh, had that shot not have missed and hit the uh, post, it would have been a win for the for the Red Army. So that's where it ended in a 3-3 three three tie. The two teams were exhausted and had laid it all out on the ice that night in the forum. It cannot be understated that both teams walked away from that game knowing that they had taken on some of the greatest players ever and proven what they needed to prove on both sides. Most would say a tie is not a result to be celebrated, but in this case it was fitting because both teams could say they had make the both teams could say they had made the statement they wanted to say. The Red Army could say that they took on the NHL's best team and almost won, and the Habs could say they took on the Soviet machine and almost won as well by playing their game. As a quick footnote, the Red Army would play the Flyers in the last of their four scheduled games uh, for the Super Series on January 11th of 76. And it would be a sharp contrast to the 75 New Year's Eve contest. The Broad Street Bullies would be true to their name it would, and beat up and try to, to intimidate the Soviets. While the Flyers did win that game 4-1, to one, it's largely remembered that the Red Army got so fed up with the situation during that game that especially when their best player Karlamov was cheap-shotted with an elbow to the head and no call was made. The Red Army actually left the ice and had to be talked back on to finish the game. The Red Army head coach was quoted as saying that was quoted as saying that the Flyers were a bunch of animals. To me, this was a stark contrast of how the Canadians only of how while only the Canadians only tied the Red Army, it was considered to be a much better game because of the display of pure hockey skills all the way to its completion. The Flyers' win was seen as more of a black eye moment for the NHL, where the Flyers showed that they needed to play dirty hockey to defeat a superiorly skilled opponent. But in the end, the Flyers would have their day in court over this one. In a piece of sweet irony, the Canadians would defeat the Flyers in the 76 Cup Finals, sweeping them four games to none. 
It was as if the Habs had said to the bullies, no more. And it can be said that that New Year's Eve game was what gave the ha- gave the Canadians the confidence not only to win that series, but to do it so decisively. After that, the bullies were never to be heard from again. And the Habs won three more cups to finish out the decade, cementing themselves as one of the hockey's best dynasties and reestablishing skilled hockey as a superior brand of hockey. Why is this called the greatest game ever played? Obviously, uh, the, the term is a very debatable point. What may be my greatest game may not be yours. But that game in the 35 years since it's been played has been held up as the standard. When people talk about the greatest game, they talk about December 31st, 1975. The game had it all. It had politics. It had the spectacle. It was just one of those rare one-off events that you know transcended sports but also exceeded the hype and expectation that had come before. Petrov is coming down to the Canadian side. He's hit over the line. Would you say we'll ever see another game this significant? Today when we have a Canada-Russia game, the game is a big deal, of course, but then they go back and play for their NHL teams and some of the Russian players are teammates with the Canadian players. It just doesn't quite have that us-versus-them mentality anymore that it used to. And I think it would be hard to recreate that, given that all the best players, as I said, play in the NHL. Would you say that we see lasting effects of this game on the NHL today? In that game conclusively proved, even after the events of 72, that you know, Vladislav Tretiak was one of the greatest goalies in the world, that Valerie Harlamov was one of the greatest forwards, and led to what we had for the next two decades, which was a wealth of Canada Cups, Challenge Cups, all these best-on-best best competitions, until the late 80s, when the Soviet players finally started joining the NHL. And today you have a league where all the best players play in the NHL, whether they're Russian, Finnish, Swedish, and you have a real global NHL. And I think you can trace that back to that evening on December 31st. So that was uh, Todd Deneau uh, in an interview explaining what he felt the legacy of the game was and how important it was to the history of hockey and the Montreal Canadiens. So uh, how do I follow that one up? He he pretty much tells you what the legacy of the game is. But I do want to take this post-game period and just kind of let you know what I think about it and a few other facts. And then, of course, like always, wrap up the book and and tell you what, what what the final verdict on the book actually is. So in the end, what is the legacy of the greatest game? As Deneau alludes to with the second part of the book's title, it was the night that saved hockey. It showed the NHL that if they were to truly be the best collection of players in the world, that they needed to approach the Soviets the way the Canadians did. Sure, the Flyers beat them a week and a half later, but they embarrassed themselves while they did it, and the league in the process. The Habs had taken on the Red Army and competed with class and skill and shown that their brand of hockey was the superior brand of hockey. And it just seems apropos that later on uh, the Canadians would sweep the Flyers in that uh, Stanley Cup Finals and show that goon hockey was not going to prevail over skilled hockey. Also, the game really helped to solidify the legend of the Soviets. The 1970s were great for the Soviet Union hockey program. They would continue their dominance, winning gold at the 76 Olympics and 78 and 79 World Championships. They had skated with the best of the NHL and would continue to dominate the NHL players later in the decade, winning the 1979 Challenge Cup against the NHL All-Stars. Furthermore, I think the legacy of the game cannot is something that cannot be understated as it served for a blueprint on how to beat the Soviets at their own game. 
you have to believe that when he was making the formula on how to beat the Soviets, Herb Brooks looked to that New Year's Eve game and Bowman's game plan and realized that you had to skate with the Soviets and beat them at their game, much like the Canadians did. It really was perhaps the single greatest game in building what the game actually is today, showing that the Soviet style of hockey was something that shouldn't be ignored, rather integrated into the North American style. And that's more of what you see today. It's the need to tell this story in such great detail that makes you understand the impact and excitement of the game that really makes this book totally an outstanding hockey book. As a reader, Deneau makes sure that in the end, you're, you're going to finish your journey of this book with a clear understanding of what made the game special before, during, and after it was played. His play-by-play -play recap of the game is so detailed and accurate that you don't even need to watch the game in its entirety, which is available on YouTube if you want to watch, because uh, it was so good. I also feel like his descriptions of the players and their background was so good as well. Uh, brief, yet concise, that you knew who these guys were he was describing and how they played their game and what kind of people they were. It really made the action jump off the pages just that much more when you when you understood the players who were playing. Also, central uh, Deneau's central idea of this book is that this was a moment that stopped the tide of goon hockey, and he says it himself in the final pages of the book, quote, uh, that this reminded all those who watched just how beautiful the sport could be when it's played in its purest form and at the highest level. That premise itself is what romanticizes the game and makes the book, uh, the, the New Year's Eve game, and makes the book such a great lesson in hockey history. So yes, as I usually say, go pick this book up. But I want to say it mo pretty emphatically, go pick this book up. But more specifically uh, to this book, set aside good amounts of time as you're going to have a hard time putting it down, uh, especially when he describes the game and the play-by-play. -play. Um, it's like watching a game. I can't say that enough. So uh, I really appreciated this book, and I hope you will too. Well, that does it for this edition. I'm really glad you decided to listen today because, like I said, this is one of my favorite hockey books, and the importance of this game to the lore of hockey cannot be understated. So as always, if you like what you heard, uh, be sure to check out my other episodes and give me a subscribe if you got a minute. Uh, make sure you don't so that you don't miss anything in the future as well. Also, if you want to get some random hockey facts throughout the week, especially around the uh, current week's uh, book, please make sure to follow the podcast page on Twitter at at from the point ah one, and look us up on Facebook and Instagram as well. With all that said, I'm happy to announce that next week's featured book will be one about one of the game's best shooters ever, whose legacy of scoring goals is one of the greatest ever and took him to the Hall of Fame. But his legacy off the ice is tarnished for many reasons. The Devil and Bobby Hull, how hockey's original million-dollar man became the game's lost legend by Greer Joyce, is up next. Till then, stay classy hockey fans, and I'll see you next week.